Welcome to Another Way, the podcast produced by Equal Citizens, a nonpartisan pro-democracy organization founded by Lawrence Lessig. This is Adam Eichen, the organization's campaigns manager. Before we begin, please support us on Patreon. With your support, we can keep this podcast going. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash equal citizens. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash equal citizens. Now to the episode. Today, we're going to dig into a, a reform that we have only briefly mentioned on this podcast, vote at home. I admit, throughout my years of advocacy, I've largely ignored vote at home, not necessarily because I thought it was bad, but because I thought other reforms, same-day registration, automatic voter registration, ending felon disenfranchisement, were more impactful. But that all changed when I first met this episode's guest, Phil Kiesling. We were at a conference in Nashville, Tennessee, and within minutes of our first interaction, he had already convinced me that I was missing something big. So my hope for today is to give our listeners a similar experience. And before we begin, a little bit about Phil. He began his career as a journalist in Portland, Oregon, and served as an editor of the Washington Monthly Magazine in the early 1980s. A Democrat, he served in the Oregon House of Representatives, and he was Oregon's Secretary of State from 1991 to 1999, where he championed the successful 1998 ballot measure that made Oregon the nation's first state to automatically mail ballots to all active registered voters ahead of every election. He has also served in the private sector and as director of the Center for Public Service at Portland State University. Currently, he is the chair of the National Vote at Home Institute. Uh, you can find more information about that at www.voteathome.org. So, Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I want to start with your time as Secretary of State. We haven't really talked much about what a Secretary of State does on this podcast, so let's start there. What is a Secretary of State? Well, in Oregon, in most states, the Secretary of State has nothing to do with foreign policy. Uh, but the most common function we have is running, uh, overseeing the election system in each state. And that's working with local election officials. Um, and in Oregon, um, the Secretary of State has some broad authorities. But elections are really run at the, at the local level here as well as most other states. But as a Secretary of State, you're in a position to uh, administer the laws, enforce them equally. And you're also in a position to promote policy changes to try to make uh, democracy more accessible to more people, which is where Vote at Home comes in, because that, that was a legislative fight that we had to take on in order to uh, expand the franchise and, and get everybody in Oregon to be in a situation where they're automatically getting uh, mailed out ballots. So, but why why were you so interested in, in becoming Secretary of State? What drew you to that position? <laughs> well, it was accidental. I actually was, uh, I got elected to the state legislature where I could do policy. I loved it. Uh, 1988, I knocked on about 10,000 doors. I'm from behind victory. Uh, found myself at the Oregon legislature in 1989. And by the way, I voted against uh, the one and only bill that came up that year that involved the expansion of this idea. Uh, you know, I, I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I think about the crunch of autumn leaves under crisp autumn blue skies and meeting my neighbors at the local Five years old, 
1991. Hmm. So it was unexpected. And what were you well, thinking? What were what were you thinking when you first took office? I mean, what were the issues that were of concern? Because in the early 90s, we're in a very different environment uh, than we are today in terms of the fight over the franchise. So what were some of the things that when you first took office, you were thinking you were going to pursue? Yeah, on the election side, campaign finance reform for sure. Uh, even in 1990, Oregon had some of the most expensive races in the entire country for state legislature. And it's kind of a mind-boggling thing, state of Oregon. We're a part-time legislature where back then you maybe made 20000 a year. But we had no limits whatsoever. And uh, I thought we should have them. We were discouraging uh, people from running because of the massive amounts of money that they had to raise at the time. I had to raise $30,000 uh, to win a tough Democratic primary fight. Today it's 10 times that uh, because we have not solved the problem in Oregon. We brought it best. So that was the main issue that I was concerned about. Uh, on the election side was the issue of campaign finance reform. And when I came into this office a bit unexpectedly, I was not a big advocate of, of vote at home. I was going to learn some more about it, but I quickly realized in talking to county clerks who were a big part of being Secretary of State that uh, they had a long history with it and some very, very strong feelings about why it made sense, and I began to listen to them. But I didn't come to my conclusion right away. Right. So, so this is the this is the great story that I want to dig into because you are now known as the father of vote at home, and you will push back on it. You've pushed back on it in the media, and you'll say that's not true. You, I think the the word you used is you were the midwife. You were you were the one who kind of maybe brought it into being statewide. But uh, you don't like that term. So why don't you tell the story of how vote at home yeah. uh, became a thing in Oregon and your role in it? Uh, so I arrived in nineteen ninety one. And 10 years have gone by in which a former Secretary of State, a Republican, a woman by the name of Norma Paulus, has been pushing this idea. And she started pushing it because a county clerk named Del Riley, a conservative Democrat in a rural county, decided that an idea he'd read about in California in a special district was worth trying. Local elections would typically get 5%. 7% turnout, school board races, bond measures for uh, local uh, districts. And he thought that was terrible. You'd gear up all these polling places, and then, you know, 19 out of 20 voters wouldn't even show up. So he literally put his professional career on the line as an elected office county clerk and decided that this was worth trying. And in 1981, uh, he was given permission Secretary Paulus pushed for it. We needed to change the law to let it happen and held an election in which not 7% showed up, but closer to 70% showed up in that local election. Wow. Wow. And what happened was that other folks said, huh, what's going on here? And they realized a couple things pretty quickly. In addition to higher turnout, they were saving a lot of money. And the reason they were, even after the cost of mailing out all these ballots to everybody, was that you weren't having to set up these polling places and pay all the poll workers. And it's a challenge even then about poll workers. I remember soon after taking office, I was at a table with some county clerks, and one mentioned that uh, she thought the average age of the poll worker in her county was now 75, at which point another clerk leaned across the table and said, how do you get them so young? <laughs> now, it, 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 it was obviously a joke, 
but it's it's a challenge. I mean, when you have we have probably three thousand uh, polling stations set up across the, the state of Oregon, and 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 getting enough people, and sometimes people show up sick, or you know, the polls don't get open, and you could have you know problems at the site. So people say it saves money, it boosts turnout a lot, and and this is interesting, voters. Who might initially say, "Well, that's a crazy idea," or "Oh, well, I like going to vote." Once they do it, they really like it. They—it's like the green eggs and ham uh, story that I, you know, I read as a kid and read it to my own kids. You know, you, you just oh, got bad idea, terrible, terrible, terrible. All those things could happen, and you start doing it, and you realize, "Wow, this is good for small D democracy." But during the 1980s, uh, more and more counties got on board. Uh, Secretary Paulus pushed to keep extending the two-year pilot period to let more and more people have it. So that by the time I got to office in 1991, Oregon law read specifically that the counties, at their discretion, could use it for any election except the primary and the general election. That the statute read explicitly, these shall not be conducted by mail. Right. And so what happens next? So what happens next is I have to run in 1992. I've decided that let's try it in primary. Maybe not such a big problem turnout in the general. Let's try it in primary. My Republican opponent has been the sponsor of the bill to make every election this way. He's pushing it hard. It'll save all this money. It'll get more people to turn out. The clerks are beating me up. He's like, we generally like what you've done, but why are you being so timid about, you know, expanding vote by mail? We should do it for every election. Well, I end up winning the election with this kind of this in-between, muddy response. But within a year or two, I'm looking at data, looking at how much it does affect turnout, and I fully support it and go into the 1995 legislative session, uh, uh, pushing the bill, being able to say, look, it has bipartisan support because my Republican opponent, I'm supporting his bill. Make every <laughs> election vote by man. So, so, but what, let's dig a bit here about what really changed your mind? Because I think this was one of the most fascinating parts about talking to you when we first met, when you, you, you admitted to me, you originally really opposed it. And a lot of it came from this idea that election day, there's something magical about this day. And yeah, it's sacred. We love it. It resonates. And if you think about it, virtually everybody in my former profession, journalism, they care so much about politics, and they themselves, um, you know, like this idea. Although, interestingly, a, a lot of them, when they're working, have to end up voting by absentee ballot. Okay. But um, what really did it for me was I realized, I call this a bit of an epiphany, I was confusing a well-known and to many beloved ritual of American democracy with what is essence, which is participation. And we have, as a country, struggled to make the franchise real and meaningful and even legal for all these citizens. You go back 200 years, uh, you had to be white, you had to be male, you had no property, maybe 6%. Then... You know, we said after an awful civil war, okay, uh, by then the property qualification had dropped, but you still had to be uh, white and male. But the amendments after the civil war said, okay, black was male, some were slaves, and freemen uh, could be, but not women. 
not Native Americans. Uh, we then it took to the 1920s to pull the other half of the population in, uh, women. It wasn't until 1923 that Native Americans explicitly were given the right, right to vote. And then, during much of this period of time, clever people are uh, suppressing the vote and, and shredding the promise that's on the law by enacting poll taxes and literacy taxes that are then unequally applied based on race. And, and so the struggle to make the franchise meaningful is still an ongoing struggle. And though the barriers are less explicit, I realize that the logistical barriers of modern life with people that are working more and more than two jobs, single parents, having transportation issues, this notion of the polling place that's have this image in Norman Rockwell paintings about this great American community building thing, has more and more become a barrier, a literal barrier. And you see that now with, with the surveys that have been done for the last 20 years with Pew and others asked, but what was it that kept you from voting? And, and most of those reasons are logistical. Something came up at the last minute. One of the things that really reinforced why this should happen is I was picking up my child uh, from preschool after one of these elections, and the preschool director was almost in tears because a crisis had arisen late in the afternoon of election day when she had planned to, to, to go, go and, and vote. She had to deal with the crisis, and she ended up not being able to vote, and she was just furious about it. And I've heard so many of those stories over the years, people that had the intent, were, it was important to them, but something intervened. And why should we let bad weather? Well, a sick child or family obligations or a change in work schedule. Why should we let that stand in the way of Americans who want to exercise the most fundamental of their constitutional rights? So by 1995, I was a full-on advocate of this in the Oregon legislature, and we got the bill passed on the very, very last day at 2 o'clock in the morning of the session, and then a really remarkable and awful thing. Well, pick us up. Where where are we going next on the story? Democratic governor had earlier asked, their agenda looks great, let me know what I can do to help. Besides, he might veto the bill. He is encouraged to veto the bill by the Republican whose name is on it. Well, I'm not sure this is such a good idea after all. But more importantly, he's encouraged to veto it by the Democratic National Committee and a lot of prominent Democrats, because, but why? Well, you know, when more people vote by mail with absentee ballots, they sometimes end up flipping races that look like we've won them on election night and then the Republican one. This is not good for Democrats. Chair of the Democratic National Committee was in Oregon uh, after all this came down and said, you know, it's like giving people vitamins without anything nutritious to eat. I still have a $100 standing reward that I've never had to pay up on for someone who could explain to me what that means. <laughs> but the bottom line was the governor vetoed the bill. It was after an unexpected victory, actually, because we had to push it through the session. It wasn't easy. Worked on it for six months. Suddenly, we're back to ground zero. And were you furious? Yeah. I'm serious. And two years later, we took it back to the legislature, and all the 
Republicans had voted for it had done a 180-degree turn on it. They led the charge to prevent it from coming out. And the only choice we had was to go to the ballot through an initiative, which passed two to one. But the reason that the Republicans turned a 180 on it was that three months after I vetoed the, or the bill was vetoed, we had a certain U.S. Senator, Bob Packwood, who resigned. And under Oregon law, that's a special election. And under Oregon law, a special election was up to the Secretary of State with consultation with all the county clerks, who, I think as one said, Phil will threaten to pawn feather you and run you out of town on a rail if you don't make this a vote-by-mail election. So we did, first ever in the country. And uh, we ran it in uh, late 95, primary January of 1996 was the general. And somewhat unexpectedly, uh, uh, though he worked hard and, and I think earned it, it turned out that a Democrat narrowly won that race, Senator Ron White, still in office. And suddenly that confirmed to a lot of Republicans, in my state at least, this is a bad idea, and they locked down against it. Democrats then said, oh, maybe, you know, it's not quite as bad as we thought. Um, I personally think it really does an advantage either political party, uh, any guarantee. It just depends on where people uh, are in terms of their ideas about, uh, views about voting. The parties have to fight that out. But uh, we had record turnout in the special election. I think it was 66% of, of registered voters. And, and, and think about that for a minute. That's significantly higher than you get in a midterm election nationally. That's the highest, basically, I think, in the nation's history in the 20th century for a for a special election for a U.S. Senate vacancy, and it proved it. The Krieg lights were on. It was a nationally looked-at election. Uh, while there were uh, unfounded allegations of fraud and mischief, nothing ever happened. And most importantly, Oregonians loved it. It was um, convenient. They got high turnout. Even those that weren't happy with the election results said this worked well. And that took us into the 1998 ballot measure, which passed 70% to 30%, overwhelming majorities, both political parties carried every every county. And since 2000, Oregon has run every single election this way. It's absolutely fascinating how, you know, these election reforms can become partisan based on who wins, right? We saw this with ranked choice voting in Maine in the 2nd Congressional District. It's not that ranked choice voting benefits one party or another, but in the first case, the Republican was ahead on the first ballot. And after the votes were reallocated according to second preference, the Democrat ended up winning with majority support exactly how the system should have worked. But now all of a sudden Republicans think that or a lot of Republicans in that area, especially led by the Congress or the former congressman who lost in that race, uh, turns it into a, a, dem- a Democratic, uh, you know, big D Democratic um, power play. And you see this again and yeah. again, that these reforms that are on their face neutral become partisan based on the results of an election, which is insane. Yeah, it's very sad. And that dynamic twenty. 20- 25 years ago is probably even more intense today, and I go back to small D democracy is what's important. Now, I happen to be a Democrat. I would could never win a Democratic primary if I were to run again for statewide office, which I definitely am not, because over the years I have had views and said things that have not always pleased the Democratic establishment. There clearly are people that benefit or see themselves benefiting from lower turnout elections. And I see it with certain Democrats, particularly around primary elections. Lower turnout's better for my base. 
I see it among Republicans, same thing, primary dynamics, even and more in some ways more so in general elections. You know, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite quotes was in Montana when Montana had a special congressional district vacancy. I think it was back in 2000 and, and uh, it might have been 15 or 16, but um, or 17. I think it was early 17. And um, a bipartisan group of legislators who said, "Yeah, this will save a million dollars." We're running it by all vote by mail. We already have 70% of our population already signed up for permanent absentee ballots. Montana's one of the highest in the country, along with Arizona and California. And it's, uh, you know, the weather might be bad, but what's not to like about this? And they pass it through one of the houses. At which point the Republican leadership in the state panicked because I think they truly believe that more people voting would have, would have, might have let the seat go Democratic. And my favorite quote from a leading Republican was, well, you know, Washington and Oregon and Colorado all do this. And they've got physician-assisted suicide and legal marijuana. <laughs> and, and, you know, totally laughable reason. No one will ever say this is a bad idea because we want fewer people to vote. I mean, that would be just ridiculously stupid on their part to do it. But that's what they really often mean when they raise concerns about fraud and tradition and, and spousal influence or labor unions or corporations. You're going to tell people how to vote. I mean, it's not that you can't have people doing really stupid things that might even be crimes. We've had examples of people voting twice or forging a signature of a spouse. Um, uh, but you get caught at the felony. And I put people in jail uh, that we, we caught and, uh, because of that. So we've had maybe a dozen cases over hundreds of millions of mail that ballot over the last 20 years. But as a county clerk once said to me about that argument, you know, Phil, you ever ask yourself why crooks don't counterfeit penny? I said, no, I hadn't really thought of that. <laughs> he said, Phil... If you're going to do the crime, you go for the 50s or the 100s. Why would you risk the, the jails the same? You're not going to affect an election ballot by ballot by ballot in, in these situations. There's far smarter ways to try to steal an election if you're willing to commit a felony. And that has stuck with me because, again, sure, there are examples out there of, of people doing things. There's examples of people doing things that don't involve uh, voted home. Uh, ballot. But on balance, the success of this reform has, has been remarkable. I tell people that if, if the country had voted at the rate that Oregon did in the last midterms, and we were lower than Colorado, we would have had 20 to 25 million more votes cast. Now, might that have helped the Democrats more? Might it have hurt them and, and brought out more rural, um, uh, you know, working-class voters, I don't know, and I just don't care. I care that in a world in which the very notion of democracy, all these, is being challenged on so many fronts, I care about getting as many of us to weigh in on these important decisions as possible. Because when that happens, more of us are accountable. More of us have a stake in what happens. We can't just check out and blame it on those people over there that somebody else in office, I had nothing to do with it. And, and I think that's the existential 
threat that we face right now is a society in which fewer and fewer people even engage in the most basic of small d democratic acts, which is the franchise casting. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Phil. Um, and, you know, so, OK, so since Oregon passed this law and moved to uh, a vote at home system, there have been a number of states that have joined it. Can you talk a little bit about the progress, the way in which this idea that started in the 90s uh, has spread, uh, mostly, you know, in the West, but across yeah. the country? Yeah. And, and in fact, the, the next state was Washington state. And it was, the charge was led by two Republican secretaries of state, Ralph Monroe and Sam Reed. They cared the same way as I did. Doesn't matter which party it benefits. We're going to, it's good for democracy. Washington did it in a bit of a, a, of a slower way, way. They just simply passed a law that let their counties do it for any election. Okay. So we had, we had let the counties do it for any election except primaries in general. Our law passed. We actually mandated it for uh, for primaries in general because it was a lot easier to write an initiative petition than to simply re- remove the word not from the statute. <laughs> so it shall be conducted this way. Washington left it up to the county. And the rural counties came out of the gate first, experimented with it, really loved it. Bigger turnout, saved a lot of money. Uh, they could save, use their dollars for other moves within their local communities. The last two were Pierce and King, the most democratic counties. Uh, but I think they finally threw in the towel and they realized, yeah, take his money and you get higher turnout. And in fact, it made a big difference. There was a big election up there where, uh, where Christine Gregoire won probably about the closest gubernatorial race in modern history. I think it was 131 votes. Sam Reed, the Republican, had to be in charge of the recount of the Democratic um, that eventually declared the Democrat a winner. You can imagine some of the dynamics around that. And they were all, of course, all male ballots. And, and Sam did a wonderful job with great integrity and could point out very correctly in that situation, every single ballot has been directly marked by the voters themselves. We have that ballot. We have a confidence in that recount because of that that otherwise wouldn't exist. Especially for these machines that don't have any kind of a counting uh, or paper backup. The next state that did it was Colorado. Washington is fully in by 2012, I think, or 2010. Colorado's next. And the dynamics there are also very interesting. The Democrats, their big prize, they thought, was same-day election registration. That's what we really want to do. Well, there's logistical struggles with that. And if you study same-day registration, which I'm a big fan of, okay, but if you study it, most of the people are not new, never been registered before voters. They're existing voters who need to update their registration because they moved and forgotten to tell the clerk. So the Democrats, that was the big problem. The Republican uh, Secretary of State hated that. But the county clerks, most of whom were elected Republicans, in effect said, well, we can live with same-day registration, but you have to go along with making every voter get their ballot through the mail because 60 to 70 percent already are that they're applying for it it's clumsy we have to set up the same polling stations and fewer fewer people are coming a waste of money it's confusing let's pull these things together and there was some terrific leadership in in colorado and i want to single out amber mcreynolds who's the ceo of our national vote at home institute amber was one of those clerks Denver county had had Watch this and watch the devolve, and uh, and she and others got in there 
and convinced legislators that this was the way to go. And while Republicans at the end of the day did not vote for it, it clearly was a bipartisan effort by election officials um, to say this is the more rational way to, to run our system. And actually, I think Colorado now has an even better system than, than Oregon. I can go into that in a while if you want. But they did it in 2013, so the 2014 election was their first one. And now we have three more. Utah, a very red state, very red, um, they decided to do it county by county. And in, in 2018, all but one county had done it, a very small one, and there'll be four on in 2020. Hawaii, a very blue state, will do it for the first time in 2020. And, and about a, a 15 counties in California, who also have the county option, they are going to do it in 2020 as well. So you now have six states where, at least at the county level, you have it. Uh, um, uh, and, uh, and so we've basically, the momentum is building, as is our efforts to try to decriminalize absentee mailed out ballots. Um, uh, that's, a, that's a big issue, too, because we're not going to get um, you know, 40 other states to do this immediately. But we can get a lot of states to make it a lot easier for voters who prefer to vote this way do it with mailed out ballots and and Virginia just went to no excuse and he went to do it by asking. Pennsylvania did it earlier in the year. Michigan did it by ballot measure uh, two years ago. Uh, but there's still about 16 states that literally make it a crime. Uh, think about it. It's a crime for me as a voter who simply wants to do it to request one if I do not have a legally valid excuse for it. And that's something that needs to change. Yeah, that's I... the evolution of how we've now reached the point that something like 42 million people voted by mailed out ballots in all 50 states, and there was about 12 million of those in 2018 who automatically got their ballot uh, delivered to them in, in states that uh, every voter gets them delivered. Yeah, you're absolutely right here, Phil. Um, and yeah, the fact that in 2018, 42 million Americans or, or their ballots were mailed out nationally um, is is incredible. Uh, and you know, I think on on Voted Homes website in 2020, you're projecting over 50 million could potentially be mailed out. Uh, and and another interesting uh, little fact here is that in 2018, a full 69 percent of all votes cast in the West were from mailed ballots. So there really yeah. is a, a change here. But I, I want to get a yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, one more thing. I was just saying, Amber McReynolds, our CEO, uh, enjoys greatly, and I think it's a great point. He says, yeah, it's mostly in the West right now. And guess where women won the right to vote first? Right. <laughs> you know, a century ago. So. Right. So, so I want to go into the weeds a little bit, because that's what we do on this podcast, uh, especially when it comes to democracy policy. Uh, so, so there are five real... Uh, there are five different laws, let's say. There are five different um, variants of voting by mail. So the one that we mostly focused on, the one that you're advocating for, the one that's in uh, in the West, in Washington, Oregon, Colorado, Utah, California, and Hawaii, is vote at home. And so that system for our listeners, uh, if you haven't picked it up, is that the government actually sends the ballot to every registered voter. There's, yeah. there's no applying for the absentee. It's you're sent the ballot. But that's not obviously the case in all 
different states, as you said, Phil, that the lowest, the worst law possible is uh, you need an excuse to get an absentee ballot, that you need a certain excuse, one that the government deems is the only acceptable excuse. Uh, and you have to fill out a form attesting to the fact that you, um, you know, have that excuse, that you have something that the government says uh, you know, is a, a valid excuse to request an absentee. The next one is a is kind of step two. Stage two is uh, an excuse required with a, a waiver for age. Phil, that's pretty bizarre. Yeah. Uh, it, it's really what, in my mind, but uh, yeah, we'll set the 65-year-old re- re- retired person without to be, then get one just by asking for one, even though I've got three cars and, and I'm in perfect health. And the... Uh, 33-year-old single mother of two who's working uh, two jobs to just keep food on the table for a kid can't. <laughs> right. So I, when I was learning about that on your website, I was pretty baffled because that really doesn't make much sense. So step three is, is much better, which is no excuse absentee. This is this is good. This is a good transition for the states on step one and two to make, which is that you can request an absentee ballot uh, and you don't need an excuse. You don't need to you know check a certain box that the government deems is the only valid excuse to miss an election. Uh, and then step four, and this is a little, again, weedsy, but it's a permanent uh, mail ballot option. In other words, that you can just check a box and say that from here on out, I, I always want to receive a uh, ballot. So essentially, it's an opt-in uh, vote-at-home system. It's not as good as yeah. vote-at-home because vote-at-home just automatically reg- or sends out a ballot to every registered voter. But this is essentially, if you know you're not going to be there, if you know you want to vote by mail all the time, it sets up a permanent vote-by-mail system for those people who opt-in. Now, any our right. listeners should know that opt-in systems are never as good as opt-out systems. Uh, like with AVR, the real key with AVR is that registration moves from something you opt into to something you have to opt out of when it comes to interacting with a government agency. And you get more people participating in that program. So it's a good step, but it's not as good as Vote at Home. Right. And Anna, I think you've outlined it brilliantly, if I can say so. Um, uh, and that notion of opt out is central to it. Now, I never articulated this way 25 years ago when we were pushing it. But if you think about it, uh, all we do is we say as a government in Oregon that if we know you are a properly registered voter, it is our obligation to send you your ballot. Now, you can opt out by of voting by just simply recycling it, okay? We hope they recycle it rather than burn it, you know, but in protest. But that's what it is. It's opt out. Now, in 2015, Oregon became the nation's also first state to pioneer another opt-out innovation, which is upstream of that. Gee, if we know you're a citizen because of the transaction at the Department of Motor Vehicles, again, it's our obligation as a government to register you, and then we'll send you a notice that says, Bill, you can opt out of registration if you want. It's all your call. We do a third thing, by the way, which has gotten way too little attention, which is an opt-out updating of an existing registration. And automatic voter registration does this, although most people think that it's important for the never registered before. But let's say you're already registered. For 20 years, we've been able to use, uh, under our state law, uh, national change of address. Uh, When I move and uh, I forget to tell my clerk I've moved, and we know that renters are five times more likely to move than homeowners, 25% a year in some cases. 
So they'll get out of uh, out of sync with what their voter registration record should be. We can simply say, looks like you've moved based on your uh, telling the Postal Service you've moved. Still, we've updated your registration to the new address. And again, if that's not right or you want to go back to your old address, maybe you're just, you know, living with your brother-in-law or your house is getting remodeled, you know, just let us know and we'll keep you at your old registration. And you can even walk into an election office on, on election, up to election day and, and update your update, as it, as it were. So we have a we have a full press opt-out kind of paradigm for our election system at all these key steps of the process. And the result is we have some of the cleanest, most up-to-date registration rolls in the country, all, all the voted home states do. And we, in a sense, you think about it, we're leaning forward, not leaning back. Most states use national change of address as almost a gotcha game. If you don't, it looks like you've moved. If you don't return this card, you might get purged. Think about how different that is in terms of how it's trying. Is that trying to push people out or trying to bring people in and make sure that they stay in? And so getting into the weeds of these things is important because you understand the basic principles that are at work here, not just the, you know, specifics of, of a particular policy agenda. It's a new way of thinking about the business model, for lack of a better word, of democracy. Right. And Phil, there's something you said to me that I, I truly will never forget in our first encounter, and it was that you framed vote by or vote at home as, you know, a an obligation of government. You said it's 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 the right to vote and the government it is incumbent upon the government to do everything it can to give you that right, to empower you. It's the government's responsibility, damn it, and they need to do everything they can to give you that power. And you yeah. you said that in such an artful way and it just it has stuck with me ever since because you're right. The government should do everything it can to ensure that ability. Right, and it's a fundamental right. I argue it's a civil right. Uh, it is foundational to this experiment of 230 plus years. There's a, there's a there's another aspect to this too that I particularly like, and that's it takes away the excuse, okay, or or, or it reduces the excuse. Um, you know, in a sense, when you when you lean forward and done everything reasonable to do it, then it's up to the up to the voters. And one of the and two things have happened that uh, I, as, as this has played out that I find particularly interesting. One is when you ask people why they uh, why they like it. It's not the money that gets saved or even the convenience, although all of that is there. But over and over again, people tell me I felt I cast a more informed ballot. Mm-hmm. I go, whoa! So you feel better about your vote? Yes. That's what I really like best about it. Now, back in 1991, the internet really wasn't around, okay? You couldn't sit at your kitchen or dining room table and try to find out about candidates by just Googling uh, their positions on an issue that suddenly you weren't sure where they were on it. We had a voter's pamphlet by the phone book at that point. You the old analog, you know, 1453 printing press version that's getting information. But, but that has really struck me over the years, that voters feel better about casting more informed ballot, and that's a healthy thing. The other thing, though, and this is important about the we that you mentioned and the details, that we don't call a vote by mail anymore, not because 
some fancy marketing firm said we should rebrand. <laughs> okay. I had an epiphany about four years ago, which I was calling it by the wrong name, and still that way in the statute. Most people in Oregon actually do not vote by mail. They don't return the ballot by just simply putting a stamp on it. Now we're going to prepay postage. They actually take that ballot in person and return it to any one of 300 drop boxes that are set up across the state. I could be 300 miles away in a different corner of Oregon uh, at work, and I'll, I'll drop my ballot off, and we'll get back to the home county in time for counting as long as it's there by 8 p.m. on election day. And the reason that Colorado, I'd argue, has an even better system than Oregon at the moment, it kind of hurts my pride to say that as an Oregonian, but it's true, <laughs> is some voters need more than just a place to drop their ballot off on Monday or Tuesday. They need to update their registration, or they need assistance, maybe uh, a particular kind of disability, or they need language assistance. Well, in most counties in Oregon, there's one place that you can go to on Election Day or for that or before, and that's the county election office in the county seat, and it could be 50 miles away. In, in Colorado, there's, there's uh, I think, more than a dozen of these in, in Denver County, throughout the whole county, you can go to any one of them. And they even have even more as Election Day gets closer. In California, which replicated the Colorado model, there's numerous of these voting centers where, if you imagine, they're, they're like a full-service election office. I can replace a ballot. Heck, even if I just am so old-fashioned, I need to have somebody hand me that ballot. It's just really important to me. I can go to vote center and do it. So... Vote at home is where most people in the system end up voting. It's a more accurate way to look at it. And it's, uh, it is premised on that basic notion that government doesn't do, do everything. It doesn't turn cartwheels. We're not going to set up a vote center at every former polling place. That would be so expensively prohibitive and a waste of money to do. But we're going to give reasonable accessibility to all of our citizens with laws that keep improving, who pay postage, that, you know, reach out to certain voters for whom the uh, voting is more difficult, including with a paper ballot. And we should lean forward in that way and not step back and say our job is to simply run a smooth election without glitches. And this is where I want to actually make a really strong criticism of any of my former journalists that are out there, many of whom are going to express great frustration because the results don't come in as quickly. I want to tell them very bluntly, get a life and cool your jet. <laughs> no, you will not find out by midnight in California if the race is closed who will get the most votes in the California Democratic primary. You may, in fact, have to wait two or three days. And why do you have to wait? Because a lot of people do bring their ballots in on Monday or even Tuesday. You need, in most places, to count the mailed-out ballots last because that's the only way you can prevent double voting. you got to make sure no one went to the polls. It does happen. Okay. We count them last because the integrity of the election matters. And don't you care about integrity? You're bleeding about it all the time. And we count them more slowly because we have to verify the signatures on every one of them because that's a matter of integrity as well. And we want to get the count right. And higher turnout is better even if it takes 
24 or 48 hours, maybe even longer sometimes if the race is really close, to declare a winner. The republic is not going to collapse because the final results are not in on election night. You may have to go to bed if you're a candidate or a journalist not being able to make a definitive call and disappoint some of your leaders. I not only don't care, but you are part of the problem. You're insistent on knowing as soon as you can about who's won. And, again, it is about trying to enfranchise as many people so their voices are heard and having an election system that is here to them. Yeah, this I, is what systems like this do. I think you're absolutely right, Phil. I mean, this is this has been a big frustration, especially in places like Arizona, which could be a tipping point state in uh, the 2020 general election that, you know, there are some states that just maybe won't be able to report on the same night. Uh, and, and part of that is well, a large, large part of it is that, um, you know, people cast their ballots via mail or Dropbox or wherever. And, you know, the I'm frankly very worried that the the you know, the media, the journalists aren't prepped, aren't ready to to prime the public for that. And people are going to think that it's it's somehow fraudulent if, if on election night 2020, uh, you know, we go to bed. And Trump is winning in Arizona, and that's the tipping point state. Uh, but all the votes from Maricopa County are, you know, ma- a lot of them are mailed in and counted after the fact. And then all of a sudden, the Democrat is up by one or two points. Uh, will people be calling fraud? Uh, I-, I fear the answer is yes. But uh, that just, as you say, goes to the you know the real the need for journalists to inform the public that slow counting isn't necessarily bad, especially if it's about securing the election, making sure every vote counts, uh, and and making sure that everyone has the right uh, to cast a ballot in, in a way that is conducive to them and, you know, their schedules. So I, I think you're 100% right here. Adam, you make, it, it, you said it far better than I think I even could say it, but I, I do want to reinforce it because I think this is so important. The typical political reporter and even some of the best-known journalistic organizations in the country are aiding and abetting the doubts and aspersions that are cast on the basic integrity of the election system. The example you use is spot on. And how do you how do you counter it? Well, one of the ways you counter it is you not only explain to people how the counting process works, but you have the very data that you put up reflecting this. Right. And I'll give you a small example, but it's really reflective of this. I, a couple of days ago, I actually literally wrote a bit of a screed to a couple of friends at the New York Times which is where I go often to get my election results. It's true of virtually everybody. But 30, 50 years, the, the tally of votes has in the lower left-hand corner a, a description that's called percent of precincts reporting. And when results come in in the first hour in a typical battleground state, that number may be 10 or 15%, and you look at the numbers, and yeah, 10, 15% of the vote have been tallied, that I still hold out hope because I think they're from rural or from urban areas or whatever. You know, people play that game, and and a lot of smart commentators are able to uh, show their stuff because they understand those differences. But the problem is the metric itself, all that it is explained is what percent of those precincts has reported any result. So as the evening goes on, and you see the number creeping up to 50 to 60 to 70 percent, in most states that don't have mail voting, yeah, that's probably close to the number of ballots. The 
California, okay, 100% of the precincts have reported something. But what people don't understand is that you'll probably get twice as many total votes cast as what the current totals reflect because of all of these ballots that have to be processed correctly. And in California, they left left postmarks, so literally valid ballots can still come in on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And the refusal of these leading organizations to even qualify the statement, reporting some results is probably less inaccurate than precinct reporting, but, but even more importantly, these are put to estimated turnout. I mean, you will know within five, six, eight hours after the polls are closed, you'll have a pretty good sense of what the trajectory is. Ha- California gives you the, the, the exact statistics. We've got this many counted, we have this many to process. Let's add the two together. Now we know really what the estimated turnout is going to be. But by not doing something as simple and as obvious as that, we play exactly into that hand of the flipped race. And it could go either way. A Democrat could be ahead, then suddenly it flips to the Republican, what's going on, doubts are raised, and it, it, and it, and it undercuts the, the sense of integrity in our election system, which unfortunately this president has done more to ruin uh, along with people like Chris Kobach, the former Secretary of State of, of, of Kansas, who was a Republican like Sam Reed and Ralph Monroe in Washington State, but was uh, as unlike them as, uh, as the weather is in Arizona and upstate New York in the middle of February. So the, the basic understandings of how elections work and those in the media who might have influence on this, um, uh, We've got some of the most obvious, simple, and basic work to do. Why aren't we doing it, especially with the stakes so high this year? I literally could not get a, a turnout estimate for the Nevada caucus, as an example, uh, until uh, I think three days after it was over. Maybe I didn't look in the right place. finally found the answer, which was all of 15% of registered Democrats, by the way, and for way longer than it should have taken. So right. thank you for raising that point about how bad reporting of results by the smartest political journalists in America and the most respected organ, how bad, imperfect, and even misleading reporting about something as basic as how votes are counted and when they're counted is actually contributing to the very uh, undercutting of integrity that others very explicitly would uh, want to push. Right. And I actually do wonder whether or not, uh, you know, moving forward, we shouldn't release results until 100% are in. Um, that is something that I've been thinking a lot about, but well, you can't. Unfortunately, you can't do that. Probably with freedom of speech laws that we have, and uh, and also not not sure you know we want to because you know a lot of people don't understand that 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 most states take twenty or even thirty days to do a final certification of election results down to the last digit. Okay, because sometimes. Signatures are missing from ballots. Provisional ballots have to be uh, looked at. Is that person really eligible to vote, or vote under a variety of rules? And, and it's very complicated. Now, most of the everybody has moved on probably at day two because almost every election is uh, decided. Uh, uh, and even if those remaining votes were to go 100% for the candidate is slightly behind, it's still not going to make up the difference. Again, you can do basic math and know when you have the ghost of a chance in a recount. But I think in the immediate term, much better education, uh, and, and that's the job of the media and the job of journalists. And it's not just 
sad at, at issues of exit polls. I mean, I, um, I actually just published a story in the Washington Monthly about how wrong the exit polls have tended to be over the years about who the actual electorate is. I mean, we don't realize that the median age of the people that voted in the presidential election in 2016 was 51. You have the same turnout is going to be 52 probably this year. Now, you can drive that down as you get more people in. and Will we get more people in? Probably. But the typical voter in America is a lot older than uh, uh, most people think it is. And when you see an exit poll, as you did after the 2016 election, that said that the median age was actually 47 of those who voted, because that's half the sample, and you go, oh, I guess the people that didn't vote were even older than the people that did. Well, a lot of journalists just look at that, and because exit polls are really good about preferences, yeah, probably, you know, Trump did win those white, non-college-educated voters by that much. They just run with every piece of data, even the stuff that's demonstrably, almost laughably bad, and we we end up painting a different picture of who's actually voting than, uh, than, than the real picture is, and that leads to similar types of, of, of confusion. We do know in voted home states that the people that turn their ballots in Monday and Tuesday are demonstrably younger than the people that turn in their ballots a week or two ahead of time. Uh, older voters, probably more settled in their choices, more organized in their lives, perhaps. They'll, they'll send it in, you know, uh, 10 days out or 12 days out. A lot of people, particularly in urban areas, younger people, they'll wait. And that's maybe not such a bad strategy either because things can change in the last you know, week or two of an election, but you leave it up to voters to decide when they want to vote, not just how they want to vote. And, and, and that's the choice of this. It's not mandatory vote by mail, which some people, academics and others, insist on calling it. It is you mail everyone their ballot, or they start the election with their ballot in hand, and they can decide how they want to return it, how and where they want to vote it, Hell, they can throw it out on on the Wednesday before, and then change their mind on election day itself. And they said in in Colorado, they can walk into any one of those vote centers and said, "I, you know, I've decided I do want to vote after all. Can I get my ballot back?" And they'll say, "Of course, here you go." Yeah, and I, what I just a beautiful thing. And I just the thing that I love, I love so much about this is that if they mail you the ballot ahead of time, it no longer becomes almost like a pop quiz. Like, I'll be honest, I do, you know, politics for a living. And there are sometimes I go to the ballot box and I'm just like flabbergasted. I'm like, I did not know this was on the ballot. So having the time to actually research is just such a uh, a wonderful thing for our democracy. And I and I have to say, Phil, that the, you know, on, on the Vote at Home website, I was pretty shocked that, you know, in just the last two years, I want to read a little bit about the progress that's been made about, you know, transitioning to a more accessible, uh, you know, voting systems across the country that just in the last two years, in 2019, Utah reached full vote at home. Hawaii passed a law that takes them to vote at home in 2020. New Jersey passed permanent, you know, single sign up absentee. That's stage four, as earlier we talked about in 2018. Nevada did the same thing in 2019. California will have more than 50 percent of their voters in counties using 100 percent mail in ballots in 2020. Um, Michigan in 2018 and Pennsylvania in 2019, as you discussed, passed no excuse absentee with a semi-permanent option. New York took the first step towards a constitutional amendment for no excuse. New Mexico passed a law requiring local elections by mailed out ballots. Uh, Nebraska went to 11 counties using mailed out ballots for 2020. 
Florida fixed a law around signature curing. California, Oregon, and Washington passed prepaid return postage, which is also great because then the onus isn't on the voter to pay for postage. Um, that's so much progress in just two years, Phil. Well, Amber McReynolds, our CEO of National Vote at Home Institute, has just done a marvelous job. She's got credibility among election officials, among legislators. She's done it. She's worked it. If people uh, uh, that have been supporting of us, and I, I think it's a, a reflection of how people see an idea, and once they think about it a little harder, they understand it, grasp it, and say, uh, "This is this is worth giving a try." And I want to stress too that it's a work in progress. I mean, we keep making improvements in our systems. The problems, you know, signature curing is a good issue. A lot of states with mailed out ballots do not give people a chance to. Uh, correct a signature if they forget it or if to update it if their signature has changed. I mean, in a good system, you give people time during that period after an election to have something like that happen because signatures do change. I might have a medical condition, might break my arm, you name it. So that constant improvement is, is a part of this as well and, and what best practices uh, are. And uh, so people interested in this movement, and it is a movement, um, you know, the www.voteathome.org. Ask what you know you can do in uh, in your state to kind of further this along, especially in the no in the states that still require an excuse. Um, you know, the states that say uh, excuses required, uh, except if you're above a certain age. Uh, <laughs> what's that about? Come on. Right. But if it's good for somebody, it ought to be good for everybody in a jurisdiction. And again, this is about small d democracy. I've watched over the years, people on either side of the great partisan divide think that this is a huge threat to them and their best interests. I still run across that. Again, I don't care. None of us should care. We should want uh, a government uh, and elected officials that reflect uh, who we are as a people, the whole notion of representation that is premised on that. We'll have our fierce debates about what we ought to do and who we ought to choose, but at the end of the day, uh, legitimacy uh, of the system matters. And to go back to one of the most basic, I just tell people that, you know, we're using an 8th century B.C. technology here. And I think that's about when the Chinese discovered paper, all right? A paper ballot is, at the end of the day, I have more confidence that the voter and the choice the voter makes is reflected on that. And I see these big vendors that want to push their $8,000 machines and get states to put $70, $100 million into the latest and greatest. Oh, this one is, will work. It doesn't have security hackability problems. We figured it out. The voter goes to the touch screen and it'll actually mark a printed ballot and then you take the printed ballot and put blah, 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 blah. Heard this for 25 years. Okay. And I keep asking myself the question when I, when I hear this sort of stuff. Well, why is that better than a voter directly marking it? And I've actually heard some arguments. I've actually heard some things. People on their websites have said, well, you know, voters sometimes will skip a race, and these machines will let people know they've skipped the race. And I ask them the question about, are you sure you don't want to vote for the county coroner? Or a voter might mark two people by accident. And don't we want to be able to tell the voter that you've accidentally marked two candidates in that race, and we won't be able to count your ballot at all? Well, yeah, but I weigh that against what you said. 
people being able to, in their timeline, to study the issues, go deeper if they need to, to call up their sister-in-law or even their you know, parents or, or kids to find out a little bit more about an issue which you get when you vote at home, that's infinitely more valuable than being almost a nanny state, to use a familiar word, that, oh, we need to force people to go to the polls with these fancy new machines because we really don't want to run the risk that uh, you know, a small handful of them will accidentally vote twice or skip a race. And if you give people more time, Phil, they are less likely to make that mistake if they're not, you know, nervous in a polling booth and have to get to work. And vote further down the ballot, uh, catching those more important races. They often skip when they're in a hurry, state legislator, county office, uh, sometimes the ballot measure questions in life. I'm not saying that this is going to cure arthritis and the common cold and stop the coronavirus in its tracks. Although someone raised an interesting argument the other day, which is that might the fear of coronavirus suddenly cause turnout to plummet at these polling sites because polling sites are a place where a lot of people congregate who might be a little bit sick but think, well, yeah, but I got to go out and do my my duty to to vote. So, you know, it's a fascinating argument. I hadn't even thought of it until five days ago. But, you know, we have in 2020 a hugely consequential election. It was always a consequential election. I don't want to be exaggerated here, but we have the uh, we have the ability to uh, continue to move policies and practices that reach out to people and make it easier for them to cast their ballot the way they want to under the circumstances they choose, and that's a libertarian argument. That's a conservative argument about freedom, and it is a liberal argument about choice. It is all of that together. It is red, it is blue, it is purple. And when you see states like Utah doing it, you see Nebraska doing it in 11 counties, although they have to be small enough. What's that about? North Dakota does it in 31 other counties. This is something that can unite us at this very contentious time in our history around uh, around something that's important to all of us. And sure, it's not going to protect against every conceivable problem. No election system is absolutely foolproof, error-free, not susceptible problems. Okay? But what's the one that's least susceptible and the most accessible voters in a democracy. I, I think it's this one. Uh, we won't make people do it overnight. If you go too quickly, you actually might not do it as well as you need to. But let's continue to make steady progress on this. And most importantly of all, decriminalize the absentee ballot for the 40% of Americans right now that literally can't get one for the simple reason of wanting one. And um, and I'll tell you my favorite excuse that's on the book that in Indiana will let me uh, qualify for an absentee ballot for my neighbor camp. Do you know what that is, Adam? What? I'm a registered sex offender <laughs> under a certain provision of Indiana law. And you stop, and this kind of just puts the absurdity of the excuse required laws into perspective. Well, I'm sure what happened there was we don't want our polling places or at schools. And do we want 
people that register sex offenders to be walking into schools on school day to, to vote? Uh, you know, all sounds good to me. I'll vote for that. Okay, pound the table and then say, yeah, but we want, you know, you've got to have an excuse. Okay. Um, there is no excuse that I'm aware of in the 16 states that require it for a public health emergency. Mm-hmm. That's maybe the more important question about the coronavirus and what else might hit us, you know, to the knock on wood. But, so, the first thing we ought to be doing everywhere in all 50 states is just simply say, anyone who wants one can get one. And then we can go from there in those states to see how much further you want to go in terms of making it automatic or even building your system around. But uh, uh, that'd be a good start. Right, right, right. And I think one of the key things is also uh, for communities that may not have easily or easy access to the postage system, to the postal system, uh, making sure that there are ways for those individuals can, to vote under a vote-at-home system, right? That making sure that like, this is why, you know, the, the, um, the vote centers and drop boxes are so critical, that we really have to go further than, we really have to be creative in how we make sure people can access the system. Because it is possible that there are, uh, well, we know this, that there are some communities that are really remote and don't have easy access to the polling locations. Uh, or, sorry, yeah, no, to, to a, the, that's, the that's post offices. And, in, you know, Oregon, we have uh, even tribal nations for sovereign government. Right, right, right. Uh, reservations. And, and there ought to be a vote center on, on every reservation. Some people who live on reservations do not have physical addresses. Well, right. you can register to vote uh, in Oregon in most states by just simply saying where you're located. Okay, GPS coordinates to do underneath a bridge if you happen to be homeless at the time. You just arrange for your ballot to be somewhere else, or you go to a vote center to, to get it. There are ways to solve all of these problems, and and the accessibility is, is, is absolutely key. Now, again, you don't go overboard and say, well, we used to have 3,000 polling places, so now we're going to have 3,000 voting centers in our, in our state. You want to consolidate. I'll make one other thing that the federal government can do, because there's been a lot of uh, you know stuff about what, how the federal government ought to help in this, and there's a lot of contention on either political party about it, and H.R. 1, a big omnibus bill, passed the House. We know it just won't have any chance of getting out of the Republican-controlled Senate. But what I have told the people I know in Congress is do one simple thing and one simple thing only. Wait on the other stuff. That's not going to happen. You know the politics. Here's the thing that you should do, and I'll call it a democracy state. Okay? Pass a law that simply says any ballot that's mailed out in a federal election of any ballot mailed back, postage will be paid by the Congress of the United States. Simple thing. It may cost $20, $40 million a year. It's a fly spec in the federal budget. But make it a basic principle of law at the federal level. The federal government should stay out of a lot of election stuff. They should do certain things, but other times they go too far. Make it a basic principle that any time a federal office is on the ballot, all the Postal Service needs to do is send Congress a bill to pay for the postage of ballots in both directions. Isn't that an elegant way for the federal government to be constructive in this space rather than mandating somebody's favorite idea or, or not? I mean, again, let's start with ideas that are going to actually make a difference and that you can find bipartisan support for. I'd love to have that bill come up on the floor and listen to what 
the opposition to it. What's not to like about that? This federal government has pumped over half a billion dollars to the states with virtually no criteria. Oh, whatever you decide to spend it on, it's just fine. And a lot of states are rushing out pound to buy voter machines that still have serious uh, questions about their security and their hackability. But heck, if it's somebody else's money, well, I guess we'll buy a bunch of them. Hundreds of millions of dollars for that. They couldn't afford a small fraction of that to give every voter in America the equivalent of a democracy stamp so they never have to worry. And if state and local governments don't have to come up with the money. Mm-hmm. That would be a game changer. Easy. Easy. Yeah. But as we know, easy, good ideas don't always get that far in Washington, D.C. But Ain't uh, that the truth. I encourage, encourage people listening that that might be a good place to start for how to encourage the, the vote-at-home evolution and uh, the continued progress of it in, in their state and across the country. Right. So, in concluding words, Phil, vote-at-home increases turnout, makes elections much more accessible. Uh, especially for down-ballot races, gives people a chance uh, to study the ballot so it's not a pop quiz, reduces the cost of elections. What else? Any final words about this amazing reform? Can it do anything else? I, 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 I think you summarized it well, and I also have to be careful to not, to not overpromise. Uh, I think the final thing I would say, though, is that, as you know, Louis Brandeis once said, that states are the laboratories of democracy. And... Uh, just because you've created a, a system at a given moment doesn't mean it can't continue to be improved. And uh, I think even voted home systems can continue to be improved. But I'll, but I'll go back to that the basic principle of what this system is about, and that is the notion that it is, at the end of the day, an, an expression of the very core value that was put in our Constitution 230 years ago, and which we have been trying to live up to ever since, which is this notion that every person okay, who is a citizen, which is how we define it now, and that could change, but right now every citizen of this country is equal. Now, we obviously were so far off the mark in 1789 with that when the franchise only extended to maybe 6% of the adult population. And it's still not there. We still need the felon disenfranchise movement is so important. And I so applaud what happened in Florida and the legislature now trying to undo it. Shame on that. But uh, we are trying to live up to that ideal and we still have a ways to go. Let's not just think it's a matter of the laws and the rights that we articulate. Let's also think of it in terms of the barriers, what's necessary but what's unnecessary that we set up in just the basic logistics of how people interact with their election system. And I would argue that this is in that same very important tradition of progress, of expanding the franchise in meaningful, in the most meaningful way, making it accessible to as many people as possible. And uh, that, I think, is what makes democracy work, not just in a given election cycle. But we got to think about the long term here. Um, uh, and I think vote at home is is clearly a way that has that as its lodestar. Absolutely. Uh, 
Absolutely. And I think that, you know, as we always say on this podcast, that these reforms are iterative, that all these reforms, you know, these pro-democracy reforms, um, you know, they all build on each other. And the more that we can pass, the more we can push the ball forward, the better for our democracy and the better each one of these reforms works uh, individually yeah. and together. Automatic voter registration works a lot better now because it's paired with, uh, uh, with vote at home. Absolutely. And with same-day registration and with pre-registration, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, I think that's how this movement is going to win, is that by all of us pushing these different types of reforms and, and you know, enacting them in law and figuring out the ways they work together well and the ways that they don't work together well and fixing it when it doesn't work. And vote at home is, yeah. is I think, uh, the next frontier. Well, and if we can get uh, the uh, strong Democrats in urban areas and the strong Republicans in rural areas and say, on this one, let's Let's unite hand in hand, let the chips fall where they may. Accessibility is an issue in both our communities, and this is a good idea. Uh, let's let's work on our state legislators to do it because it is the state legislators that have to, uh, you know, make these changes and, and change the laws. But uh, uh, it's a, it's a it's a great cause, and uh, I hope people listening to this um, uh, will decide they want to help. Well, that's a great way to end it. Thanks so much for joining us, Phil. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And for those who want to learn more, you can go to voteathome.org. This has been another episode of Another Way. Please do consider supporting us on Patreon, and I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.